What truly matters is teachers' expertise. The most important tip for new teachers is to set out your boundaries. 44% of jobs will be automated. It reinforces cycles of disadvantage. Hello listeners and lovers of learning and welcome to episode 65 of the Education Research Reading Room, the podcast that brings you into the discussion with inspiring educators and education researchers. I'm Ollie Lovell and it's a pleasure to be your host in the ERRR. I'll start today by acknowledging the Boonwurrung people of the Kulin Nation on whose lands this podcast was recorded. Pay respect to elders past and present and acknowledge that colonisation and dispossession are both ongoing processes. Today we're speaking with Hope Wilder. Hope is the founder of Pathfinder Community School, which was a self-directed learning community for ages 5 to 14 that operated democratically, including students using sociocracy. Hope is currently a sociocracy consultant, a trainer, and the schools and sociocracy program manager at Sociocracy for All. I just said sociocracy a lot of times, and if you hadn't heard about it before this episode, don't worry at all. It's essentially simply a powerful process for collective decision-making. Hope is also the author of Let's Decide Together, a workbook for collaborative decision-making with children. This is the fantastic book that we're speaking about in the ERRR episode today. I can't wait for this episode to hit the airwaves because it contains a lot of fantastic insights about how to practically involve young people in decision-making, both in schools, in the home, and really anywhere. It also contains ideas for running better meetings in any context. I'd also like to remind listeners that if you're keen to never miss a podcast, blog post, or any other exciting educational announcement, then jump onto ollilovell.com forward slash subscribe to make sure you get all the updates from me about teaching and learning. The web address again is ollilovell.com forward slash subscribe. This episode of the ERRR podcast is brought to you by John Cat Educational, and this month I'm excited to share a new addition to the In Action series, Annie Murphy Paul's The Extended Mind in Action. For those of you who listened to my discussion with Oliver Caviglioli back in episode 42, you know that there's a whole host of fascinating research coming to the fore at present around the way that cognition is coming to be seen as much more than just what goes on in our heads. In this book, Emma Turner, David Goodwin, and Oliver Caviglioli build on the original research summarizing book by Annie Murphy Paul, The Voices of Teachers, and more to demonstrate how teachers can help their students augment their thinking with their bodies, embodied cognition, external tools, situated cognition, and the people around them, distributed cognition. This is a super exciting space and one that I'm really keen to dive more into myself. Of Murphy Paul's original text, Dan Willingham has written, The extended mind is not just a fascinating read, firmly grounded in science. It will help you and your students and your children to think better. And Doug Lemore's review reads, It will take you on a journey to a hundred deeper applications of the emerging science that suggests that the mind thinks within, with, and through the body. You can get Annie Murphy Paul's The Extended Mind in action at johncatbookshop.com and if you use the code ERRR30 at checkout, you'll receive 30% off this new in action book as well as any other book from John Cat Educational. That code, ERRR30, will also give you 30% off my book, Cognitive Load Theory in Action, or my new book, Tools for Teachers, which is now available too. This episode of the ERRR podcast is also brought to you by Catalyst, a project pioneered by Catholic education in the Archdiocese of Canberra and Goldman. 
Catalyst is an evidence-based educational project that's working directly in schools and with teachers across the ACT and parts of New South Wales. Catalyst has its genesis in this podcast and is a structured and strategic approach to bringing the science of reading and the science of learning to life in more than a thousand classrooms. It's drawing on both local and international expertise, including several guests from the ERRR podcast, to realise the bold vision of transforming students' lives through learning by developing excellent teachers and leaders. If you'd like to find out more about opportunities at the Catalyst Project and Catholic education in Canberra, including the professional development that they're running, the way that they're engaging Australian and world leaders in evidence-based education, and even to explore employment opportunities, just click on the Catalyst logo or follow the link in the show notes. Now, without further ado, let's jump straight into episode 65 of the ERRR podcast with Hope Wilder. Hope Wilder, welcome to the Education Research Reading Room. Thank you so much for having me. The first question we usually ask people, Hope, when they come on is, if you meet someone and say, hi, Hope, what is it that you do? What's, what's your answer? I tell people that I am a trainer and consultant and that I work to help adults share power with children. And I do that through teaching, through writing, and also working with a nonprofit to support specifically schools and education. Okay. Help adults share power with children. I really like that line. And what do you see as the purpose of education, Hope? I see it as preparing people to live meaningful lives in community. So I think hopefully that would mean teaching collaborative skills and also the emotional skills to self-regulate. Okay, cool. Well, I'm sure we'll touch upon lots of that today. Mm -hmm. Could you tell us a little bit about your career to date? Sure. I started out in environmental education, so mostly leading kids outside at summer camps and field trips, nature walks, that kind of thing. And then I found a new educational philosophy of self-directed democratic education and decided to start a school called Pathfinder Community School. The school ran for a couple years until it had to close due to COVID. And since then, I've been working to help other people start similar schools and to use similar practices as we did in the school. Fantastic. Well, that's a good segue into the first kind of content or meaty question of today's podcast. You mentioned you started a school, Pathfinder Community School, and you mentioned also that part of your jam is about helping adults to share power with children. And in your book, Let's Decide Together, which we're discussing today, I was really interested in this kind of vignette that you hinted towards in terms of something that happened at the school that in most schools would kind of occasion maybe some lockdown, some drastic reaction, something like that, but that you dealt with in uh, using the tools that we're going to be speaking about today. So I thought that might be uh, an interesting place to start, I hope. So the scenario, as you, as you said, it was some of the students in your school, as often happens, they were on the internet doing some searching. And I guess as a joke, they, they decided to search butt stuff. <laughs> Would you let us know kind of what happened following this hope and how the school dealt with it? Yeah. So the parents brought it to my attention and my immediate response was, oh no, I have to do something right now because people are going to take their kids out of the school. You know, if they think this kind of thing is happening. And then I stopped myself and said, wait a second, we have a way to make decisions together I need to trust that process, or at least, you know, try the process out and to not make a top-down director decision. So um, what we did is we went to the staff, the parents, and all the students and asked them the question, 
what would make you feel safe with students using the internet? And it was really surprising to me because the kids wanted to feel safe too. They were like, well, we still want to be able to watch the real YouTube because YouTube Kids is totally boring, which I agree. <laughs> but at the same time, they wanted to be safe from strangers. They, they didn't want to see things that they didn't want to see. And then staff wanted to be able to look over kids' shoulders just to make sure that they were staying safe. And then um, the parents had all kinds of feedback about what kinds of discussions we could have with children to use the internet responsibly. So we took that all and together we came up with a proposal that everyone in the whole school had worked on. And the proposal was something like everyone who wants to have the Wi-Fi password, that was the power we were holding out. If you want the Wi-Fi password, you must attend a monthly internet certification training where we will discuss topics and come up with agreements for how to use the internet. And we had maybe a one-page agreement. There was just things like, don't talk to strangers, don't reveal your location, don't look at this, don't look at that. If you come upon something that is disturbing to you, go talk to an adult, things like that. And it worked really well. Every month we had a packed room for the internet safety certification. And I think it helped everybody feel better about the situation. Cool. That sounds great. That's a real great taster into some, some of the great outcomes that can come from this process that we're going to be talking about today. Now, the process does have a name. I'm not sure if we've mentioned it yet today, but the name of the process is, as far as I'm aware, sociocracy. Mm -hmm. Could you start by telling us, Hope, what is sociocracy? Sociocracy is a way to share power. It's a set of tools for decision-making and governance. And that's basically just how people self-organize. And it could be used in a family, in a company, in a nonprofit, in a school. Why do we need sociocracy? People are terrible at making decisions together. <laughs> and sociocracy helps organize people towards a common goal, but it also uses consent decision making, which is just something that everyone can live with for a short period of time and that people are willing to try out. So it means that the people who work together decide together. And instead of having roadblocks or a minority that's disenfranchised, everybody's on the same page and people work together to implement whatever decisions are made because they were part of the process. So it's really, it leads to a more egalitarian structure. Great. How did you come across this process of sociocracy yourself? I was actually determined to start a democratic free school, and I had gone to several democratic schools, and I had seen the same sort of problems that you see in majority rules democracy situations, where there would be some people who were just completely upset with a decision who felt like they hadn't been heard and that they didn't matter at all. And I was like, the whole point of this is supposed to be empowering kids, you know, and these kids feel really disenfranchised in the minority. And then a friend of mine said, well, I think you should check out sociocracy. And I, I went to this workshop at an intentional community. It's very popular in intentional communities as a way to organize. And it just blew me away. I was like, this is what I've been looking for. I took it back to the school board, which was the first group that organized to found the school. And I was like, we're doing this. <laughs> and then we did. That's great. I was so happy to come across your book, I think our mutual friend James Mannion sent me the sent me the link because I'd made meaning to explore sociocracy for probably close to 10 years actually. I came across 
the name about 10 years ago when I was doing environmental activism and things like that. And I kept on going, oh, I've got to explore this, got to explore this. And now I'm kind of working more in education. Uh, It was great to see it, but also translated to more of an education focus, which your book's done. So yeah, I was really excited to, to learn about it as well. And I was also really excited that you were able to track down and share with me a bit of a recording from an actual meeting. And we're going to be sharing some of the excerpts from that today. And we can maybe even do a bit of a role play to give listeners a bit of a more of an insight into what sociocracy is like. Where have you seen it really work? I've seen it work at my school, obviously, but also in the nonprofit that I work for, which is called Sociocracy for All, which organized, is organized and uses sociocracy at all levels. But where I've seen it work most is when people have an objection, which is a reason that a proposal won't work for them. I've never seen an objection that couldn't be resolved. And I've seen people come into a meeting kind of ready to fight and then leaving feeling better and more connected. Pretty much every meeting I've ever been to, we do a checkout at the end of the meeting and people say, I'm leaving feeling so energized. And I'm like, when have you been to a meeting where people leave saying they feel energized, you know? (laughs) But that's just true everywhere that I see it. Cool. Let's jump into one of those examples. If if one jumps to mind, Hope, an example of a time that someone, you know, someone's coming really ready to fight and this process has helped that to be a really positive and, and productive conversation. Yeah. So at my school, one time I brought in a proposal about staff sick leave and vacation pay to the staff circle, but I hadn't run it by the administrator in charge of the finances before then. And I was just like, let's take care of people. Let's be really generous, you know? And then in the meeting, the administrator got really huffy, like, this is impossible. There's no way this is going to work. Like, very, very negative. And at the same time, the staff got upset because they were like, we've been working here for a year and with no sick leave and vacation time, this isn't fair. So we kind of took a breather said to cool down and sent the administrator home with homework saying, can you just do the numbers and see how much we can afford? And basically what the staff was asking for was almost a rounding error in our annual budget. So they thought that it wasn't possible, but it was just because nobody had really checked. And I think in that example, we were really focused on everyone's needs. Like the administrator needed to know the organization wasn't going to go bankrupt just because we were being really generous. And the staff needed a break every now and then to stay sane and to take care of their families and themselves. So connecting to everyone's needs and then looking for how can we make this work for everyone made us come to a better solution. It it wasn't quite as much what the staff had asked for, but it was still something that everyone could live with. And that most importantly, it wasn't going to to break the bank. Cool. So did you use this like, I'm interested how it played into the structure of your school. Like Mm -hmm. it sounds like you had like a leadership circle and then I imagine you had circles and I, the, the term circle from my understanding is kind of groups of people who make decisions together. Right. So you had a circle like with students, maybe you had one, maybe you had multiple. Where did it sit within the structure? And also how could you see it sitting within the structure of a more mainstream school if you could? Right. So this circle was just the teacher's circle. We called it the staff circle because it also included administrative staff. And the staff circle would make decisions about staff-related issues basically as constrained by the budget, but things like how to stock the staff room you know, snacks and also staff policies like the staff policy handbook lived in that circle. 
Then for the students, we had circles for different age groups. So like the five to seven-year-olds, the eight to tens, the 11 to 13s. And then those circles would be interconnected with two representatives to a council of six kids. And those six kids we called the members circle. And then the member circle connected to a central circle that we called community circle, which just connected the kids, the parents, and the staff. And then the kids, the parents, and the staff are all connected to the board via the director is one person who sits on the board. And then there's a representative. Everybody's elected to their those connecting positions. And we even had one time a student who was 14 years old get elected as the representative from the, the 11 to 14 year olds into the member's circle, then into the community circle, and then into the board. So they had to go to a lot of meetings. But on the other hand, we had like a 14-year-old having an equal voice on the board as the adults in the organization. Wow. That's amazing. And so basically, I'm just trying to think of the way to the way to picture this. It's kind of like if people have seen like a family tree picture, mm-hmm. maybe, to correct me if I'm wrong, it's like except every branch like represents another circle and then other circles branch off down from that. So everyone is, has kind of a link through to like the top dogs or the main decision makers or, or the main people holding power. Yeah. Yeah. Is there a better way to explain than that? No, it's completely that way. And I, I would say I do know at least two public charter schools in the U.S. that use this structure and they do it by classroom. So the classrooms have like their own, I think in one one school, they call it advisory councils with one teacher and a bunch of students. And then those are linked together to like a student council. Then the student council is linked with the administration. So again, you can have elections going all the way up, but um, it can work classroom by classroom. Do you remember the names of those schools in case people want to Google them? Yeah, it's New Roots Charter School in Ithaca, New York, and Shepherd FlexTech, F-L-E-X-T-E-C-H, in Shepherd, Michigan. Cool. And I, I believe our um, recording little excerpt later is from New Roots. I remember them saying that that name in the uh, in the recording. Yeah. Obviously, though, we, we don't want to give students rule over everything, right? There's probably a few things that maybe we don't want them. Well, maybe it's not obvious. Maybe there is nothing that we don't want students to, to have input into. But more importantly, in the book, you emphasize this idea of domains within sociocracy. Could you tell us what a domain is? Sure. So a domain is an area of decision-making power and responsibility. So for example, at our school, there's a finance circle that has responsibility of taking care of the finances, but also the domain of tracking and keeping the finances. Whereas the board has the domain of the vision and mission and aims and the bylaws and you know the legal compliance of the organization. Then with the kids, they had the domain of deciding what to do with their day since it's a self-directed learning center and also shared domains of how to furnish the school, where to go on field trips, what classes to take. We gave them really a lot of domains. That's great. So I'm curious to hear more about like students who were in charge of the domain of working out what they do at school. What did that look like? Did, was that like a, every morning they'd get together? Or was it once a week they'd get together or and then be like, oh, we're doing this today? Or like, what did it look like? Yeah, we had a daily meeting called Set the Day. And People would just shout out what they wanted to do. We would also have requests for workshops, anything that required instruction or more involved organization by an adult basically would be a sign-up sheet. 
And the the day of, it would be like, I want to play Capture the Flag at two o'clock. This is very <laughs> typical. Or like, I want to play Simon Says on the rug after morning meeting. But also they might say, I would say to them, like, there's also going to be a science workshop at one o'clock. We're going to take a walk to the creek at noon and have a picnic by the creek. So then um, the kids could kind of choose between all the different options of what were available for the day. Mm, cool. What about, I mean, another thing that you emphasize in your book is that this isn't just used in organizations and schools and things like that. It's also used in the family. So what can sociocracy in the family look like? Yeah, I've actually been working with the family recently to decide things like how to use shared spaces in the house. Like literally there's a pile of shoes by the door. What do we do to deal with that? And that's a shared domain of the adults and kids together. So not, it's not just completely given over to the kids. Another one is how much the parents were working with a teenager about how much time to spend on the computer. And the reason it was a shared domain between the adults and kids was that the time on the computer was affecting the relationships and the family and the quality of time that they spend together. So I've been working with them to kind of come up with literally proposals that they consent to, to try to figure out how to navigate these issues. Hmm. Well, that's really two very hot topics. Hope let's come back to them because I. But after we've done a little bit of an example, because I, I want to bring it to life a little bit with a bit of a role play, and then we can come back to them. And I'd love to hear kind of where the the families got to and 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 how that played out. Before with the role play, one final question: You also emphasise the role of aims within sociocracy. Mm-hmm. So tell us what 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 you mean by aims and how they play into this whole process. Sure. So the domain is kind of that area of responsibility and the aims are like products or decisions or activities that you're doing within that domain. Let's say you have a cooking club and the cooking club is completely responsible for cooking one meal a week. So if you want to help decide, you have to join the cooking club. And then the activities the cooking club does is they budget for the meal, they purchase the meal, they cook the meal and they serve the meal. So those would be the aims, like cooking, budgeting, et cetera, the the action words. Okay. So the aims are what the kind of product of the meeting is going to be. Yep. Okay. Let's do a bit of a let's 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 have a meeting. I'd love to have a meeting with you, Hope, if you're if you're willing to do that. Yeah, let's do it. I'd love to discuss the title of this podcast because often deciding the title's a bit tricky because there's lots of different factors playing into it there's the the hopes of the guests the hopes of myself what what we think is gonna you know get the most listeners in and things like that so and you know i know you also do like check-ins and stuff at the start so feel free to model like i'm just going to hand over the interviewer's hat to you now hope all right you run it and and run it exactly the same way as you would normally sure so much power so we'll start out with a quick check check-in just how are you doing right now ollie pretty good hope yeah i'm pretty good i'm keen to make sure that you're feeling happy and comfortable in the interview. But apart, apart from that, I'm, yeah, doing well. Yeah, and I'll check in too. So I'm feeling excited to get to have the facilitator hat on right now. So I'm kind of like, ooh, goody. And I'm also nervous, but I'm not, that's not my primary feeling. It's kind of like excitement and nervous at the same time. So now that we're checked in, we can move to our question for the day, which is what should the title of this podcast be? We'll start out taking turns saying, what makes a good podcast title? So like, what are the qualifications for a podcast title? So what do you think, Ali, makes a good podcast title? Cool. I'll I'll also introduce another character into this just to represent some other views. And listeners will be familiar with 
the drink bottle from last episode because the drink bottle was <laughs> featured in a role play then. So this is a drink bottle and checking in drink bottle. Drink bottle is actually feeling more than half empty today, unfortunately. <laughs> Ollie will say that a good title for a podcast is one that gets people to listen, right? Because if no one if no one opens the podcast, if people see a title and they go, oh, that doesn't look like it's for me and they never even start it, then they don't they can't hope to extract any wisdom from it. So that's what I'd say. Um, Drink Bottle would say a good podcast title will be basically just agreed upon by the people who are participating. Um, So no one's going to feel like it doesn't represent it or like it's not what they wanted or something like that. And then as for me, I feel like a good podcast title will communicate, you know, something of interest, like something intriguing, but also reflect the content of the podcast. So we've got a list here. It gets people to listen. It's agreed upon by the people participating and it communicates something of interest that reflects the content. So can we consent to this Ollie and drink bottle? Is this a good enough list of qualifications? How do I consent hope for those at home who can't see it? You can do throw a thumbs up uh-huh. or a thumb sideways. So thumbs up means I like it. Thumb sideways is like, I'm okay with it. Thumbs down is I can see a reason it would not work. Okay. So thumbs up, down, or sideways. Or drink bottle can just turn sideways. Okay, I'll put a thumbs up just to keep things interesting. Let's just say drink bottle goes on this side. All right. And I'll go thumbs up. Actually, I think. No. Actually, no, drink bottle face down now. Just, face just down. Just because I don't know. You're going to see what's going to happen. I don't know what's going to happen. Yeah, then drink bottle. What's What's not good enough about this list? Like, is it incomplete? Is there something you feel that's just wrong? Okay, Drink Bottle says, I feel like there's probably something else that's important about podcast titles, but I don't know what it is right now. Sorry, I hope I'm making it hard for you, but we're just, just <laughs> testing the process. Okay, then I would say if you think of what it is later, then we'll add it to the list. Does that work for you? Drink Bottle is now on their side. Okay, sideways is good enough to keep keep going. Great. Great. Then the second thing, after qualifications, we will do what do you nominate for a podcast title and why? What do you think a good podcast title would be considering the qualifications? Okay. Maybe something like EIRRR episode 65, which we always start with. Hope Wilder on, because that's the format. It's always like the name of the person then on, how to run effective meetings. All right. What about drink bottle? Drink bottle E triple R zero sixty five. Hope Wilder on sharing power with students. And then for me, I will say Hope Wilder on empowering children to decide together. If if I want to talk out of turn, do I just like put my hand up or something? Is that okay, or or, or can I not do that? Oh, I can let you. I can let you know what's next, and then you'll see if you have something to add. What's next is if you changed your mind or if you've changed your reasoning or something to um, share like what you've changed your mind to from your original nomination. So if you changed your mind or you have some comment or something, Ollie. Yeah, I'm, I feel like there's probably a few other options mm. that we could brainstorm that might fit better. Do you want to do another round? Yeah. Sure, let's do it. Okay, well, they're not jumping to mind. I guess maybe just because I'm not familiar with this process enough, like I – I'm used to like a bit of back and forth here. So that's something I'm feeling a bit of tension. Like usually after, um, I'm just kind of saying how I feel. Usually after suggestions are made, there'd usually be a bit of back and forth and talking. So I'm I'm, I'm worried, like I've got this bit of apprehension that something's going to 
get locked in and like I've I've said my I've said my suggestion now and it's like oh that's my last suggestion and if I you know it might be too late to to change it or something like that so yeah that's just kind of sharing how I'm feeling right now mm-hmm. and also I guess I've I haven't had the heaps of think I mean I could have had more thinking time on this because I knew it was going to be the question for today but that's actually breaking out of the meeting right and back into the interview is there usually like a time for people to think about stuff beforehand or um is that something you usually do um it depends on the meeting this this kind of decision we're making is something i would use for electing someone into a position or deciding between a few options like what movie to watch or what to eat for dinner and it does help if you have time to think about it beforehand because people can feel put on the spot so i might say you know hey this afternoon we're going to decide what to eat for dinner tonight. So just have a think about it before we get together. Okay. Does anyone ever say within a meeting, oh, I haven't had time to think about this and I feel like I need time to think about this. Is that a thing? And what happens if that's the case? I have seen people, usually they'll just say pass and come back to me later. So I haven't seen anybody say they need more time outside the meeting. I think if that was a very important topic that was being discussed and somebody said, I'm just not ready to decide this today, you could just push the topic to another meeting. Okay, got it. Back into the meeting now. Mm-hmm. Look, I can't think of anything right now, but I guess I just wanted to share like how I was feeling about that and right. that I feel like maybe there's some better ones out there that we just haven't said yet. Mm-hmm. That's me. And then Drink Bottle says, I'm happy with the options. All right. So I will read through what we've got so far and just remember that you can even say something completely different from these three options. This is just the ideas that we have on the table. Hope Wilder on is the first part of all three of them. Number one, how to run an effective meeting. Number two, sharing power with students. Number three, empowering children to decide together. So having heard what everybody said, what do you think is the title you would nominate now? So we'll go the same order, Ali. Drink bottle, me. Sure. Well, can I share some of the rationale? Is that helpful? Yeah. And why? Why is good? Okay, cool. So I originally suggested how to run effective meetings because I thought that that might get the most people to listen because like everyone wants to run more effective meetings, right? But then I'm also thinking that your your original suggestion, Hope, on empowering children to decide together would be great as well because it will get the people in who, who want the kind of sociocracy content to come and listen so i'm thinking like what's going to be best if people come in because they want to run effective meetings are those people likely to stick around and be open when they hear words like sociocracy which sounds like you know socialism and other words that um, some people might have negative connotations to some might have positive as well but right so i'm thinking if, if if those people come in is that going to be are they going to stick around i know your title is really good because probably going to get the right people in but Maybe it won't get people in who are like, oh, empowering children, why would I want to do that? And then one, they might not be open or they might not um, hear, hear the power of this process but for empowering children, but also they might not hear the power of the process for just their own meetings, running meetings with adults, right, which are often horrendously inefficient as well. So, yeah, I'm still, I'm still a bit unsure. That's me. Drink Bottle says, well, Hope knows lots of stuff and she does lots of consulting in this area. So... Uh, her idea is probably good. All right. And I, after having listened to both of you, I'm also thinking about kind of clickbait and what makes people click. 
but now I'm like, my brain is going in different directions, but I'll just say hope wilder on what happens when you give children power. So, and having heard what everybody said and having heard the reasons given, I'm going to nominate Hope Wilder on empowering children to decide together. Are there any objections to that? And objection meaning you can see a reason it wouldn't work. Or uh, you can see a reason, and it could be based on you don't think it'll get people to listen, you just don't agree with it, or you don't think it communicates something of interest or reflects the content. Hmm. Ollie speaking here. I'm wondering if there's a way that we can bring in both the like, because I feel the power of the efficient meeting or the effective meetings one is that it helps people think, oh, there's a process for like, yeah, being more efficient because it's kind of tapping into that thing for people where it's like, oh, meetings, they can be so frustrating. But I also see the the great thing about your initial suggestion, empowering children to decide together because it's really at the heart of like your philosophy and also it's what the process enables. So I, I guess I'm wondering if there's a way we can bring them both together, something like Hope Wilder on effective meetings, empowering student and decision-making or enabling effective meetings and enabling student decision-making or something along those lines. I'm not sure exactly. I haven't quite nailed that that's not as tight as i'd like but yeah that's that's where i'm at right now drink bottle says oh the idea of combining those things sounds interesting that's but i'm not sure exactly how to say it either all right and i will say it sounds like we're still in brainstorming mode which is a-okay what about how to run effective meetings where children decide and then we've got on effective meetings and empowering or enabling student decision making. So you, that was how on effective meetings where children decide. Mm-hmm. So what are we doing now? Are we going around again? Is that how it happens? Yeah, let's do another round. Just maybe reactions this time. We're a little bit going off script. Usually by now I would just nominate one and hope that everybody can consent to it. But I was going to do that after one more round of reactions because sometimes during reactions is when you actually get amendments. You say like, I like this, but I don't like that. And then I can nominate something that kind of incorporates that feedback. So yeah, what are your reactions to those, just to those two ideas? Yeah, how to run effective meetings where children decide. My reaction is I'm trying to somehow capture the the two parts without suggesting that they're linked in a way that they can't be separated. Right. Because this, this process could be used just for effective meetings and it can be used well, it can't be used just to empower students because it's empowering students through the process. But the effective meetings where children decide suggests that it's only for children decision-making. So that's why I like the word and, how to run effective meetings and help children decide or and empower young people, something like that. Bottles is passed. <laughs> and I say I love how to run effective meetings and empower young people. That sounds great to me. So that's what I'm going to nominate, how to run effective meetings and empower young people. Are there any objections? Thumbs up, thumbs down, thumbs sideways, or bottle up, down, sideways. Everybody's thumbs up. We have consent. Do a little dance. Do a little dance. Nobody can see the dance. So I'm singing a dance song. (laughs) (laughs) Great. That's it. That's it. There you go, listeners. A bit of an insight into uh, both sociocracy and the, the decision of what to name this podcast. Thanks, Hope. Usually also I don't even, I don't must admit, I don't even discuss with the guest what the podcast is going to be <laughs> called, despite what Drink Bottle suggested. So, yeah, thanks. That was fun. So then our last part of the meeting, before I'll hand back over to you, is a meeting reflection. So just how did the meeting go? 
Drinkbottle enjoyed the meeting, but is feeling even more empty than before, unfortunately. But that's okay. I'll fill you up soon, Drinkbottle. Ollie is feeling pretty happy. I was kind of worried I was derailing the process a little bit there for a while, but I like, I guess it's a topic that I'm obviously passionate about, like making sure that we've got a really good name for the podcast. And I felt like I had some things that I wanted to share and I kind of wasn't happy with it, but I was kind of a bit worried about how that might work in like a larger group if I was like taking up too much space or, or something like that. So I wasn't, I was a bit unsure about that, I guess. Right. And yeah, it went well for me. I feel like sometimes an aesthetic decision, you know, a decision that's based on an opinion like this can be especially hard to make using sociocracy. But I was glad to have the time to give reactions. And I felt like in those reactions was where it kind of gave you a chance to think through why. And that that reasoning is what really, I think, helped pull out a, a punchy final product. So that is me and I am done and I will hand the hat of facilitation back to you. Great. Thanks. Hope. That was that was lots of fun and sorry for taking it back. I took the hat back with, at the end when I thought it was the end of the meeting. So that's my bad. But uh, thank you. It emphasizes the importance of something you emphasize in your book, which is the idea of like a talking object, mm-hmm. like the facilitator's hat or something like that. So that's that's great. So just to break down what we just did, we had the, had the check-in, other check-ins you often run. With kids, I might do something like, if you were a color, what color would you be? If you were an animal, what animal would you be? And and relating it to today, like, how is your mood today? And if you were a weather pattern, like, do you feel cloudy, sunny, rainy? Um, and that can help kids share and connect and makes it more fun rather than just how are you doing? Sometimes kids don't want to talk about how they're doing. They'd rather talk about what they had for breakfast. So talk about that. It's just to kind of warm up, get chatting and feel more comfortable. Mm, yeah, that's good. So you got like, if you're an animal, if you're a weather pattern, I haven't heard that one before. One I've used in the past is like, if you were an item in the fridge right now, what would it be? Although the issue I find with that one is often kids just say what they feel like eating, which is like a bit <laughs> different to like how you're feeling, but that's okay as well. That's still sharing. So yeah, anything like that, I think can be a, a fun fun check-in and also a good way to do it. So we, we had the check-in just kind of to dissect the structure for listeners. We had the check-in then you specified the the question for discussion today, mm-hmm. which was what should we name the Oh, no, no, actually, you had a better one. You said, first, let's go around and say what makes a good podcast title. Right. Which is awesome and really aligns with, I had Vivian Robinson on and she talks about um, the importance of engaging in decision-making rather than bypassing people's ideas. And it's kind of similar to the question I start this podcast with, which is what's the, what do you see as the purpose of school-based education? Because it helps to understand where people are coming from. So I thought that was a fantastic way to start. And that's not something I, I must have missed it in the book, like starting with like the criteria, mm-hmm. which I think is a great place to start. So the first check-in, then what's the criteria for, what's the question and what's the criteria for making this decision today? Then we did a round with suggestions. And then we did, we did it basically a couple of rounds and you kind of, you distinguish quite clearly between suggestion rounds and like reaction rounds, mm-hmm. or at least you tried to. I probably, I probably didn't play by the rules that well. And we also emphasized the why during that and kind of alternated between suggestions and reactions and things like that until we kind of, and, and you were making, you were, you had quite an active role as a facilitator because you had to kind of suggest or nom- make a nomination and get a reaction to that. And so we were reacting to nominations and then we had the consensus thumbs up, thumbs sideways or thumbs down um, to say, sounds great. 
I'm okay with it sideways or down. I'm not okay with it yet. That's great. Is there anything I've missed in terms of that, that bit of a summary of what we've just gone through? Nope. Then just to check out. So check in, decide, check out. That's right. And reflect, you know, how was, how has that gone? I wanted to come back to now that people kind of have a bit of a clearer picture of what sociocracy is, what this process can look like. We have lots of parents who listen to the podcast, Hope, and um, how to use the shared shoe space and how to navigate computer time, I'm sure, are both very hot topics. So, could you give us a bit more detail about how you're working with this family, like what, how those meetings are going, how old the, stu- the kids are, and yeah, a bit, bit more about those, those two important topics. Yeah. So, this family has three kids aged about 8, 11, and 14. And the shoes was with everybody all hands on deck at the meeting. And I can just talk through really quickly. We use this structure that I talk about in the book called the change up meeting. And it starts with what's happening. So what's happening is there's a giant pile of shoes by the door. And we talked a little bit more about like, why is that a problem? You did rounds. So there's a round which is like, what's happening? And different people articulate what's happening. Or- yeah. Different people articulate what's happening. So you get a complete picture And the complete picture was we can't open the door when there's so many shoes on the floor. There is a shoe shelf, but people just aren't putting their shoes on the shelf. They're throwing them on the floor. And there are some people this bothers and some people don't care. Then the second question is what needs do you see in this situation? And it's like individual or group needs. And it's just very simply, well, we need to be able to open the door. (laughs) We need to be able to walk by without tripping on shoes. And some people need to feel calm, like just seeing the mess makes them feel bad. And at the same time, we need a convenient way to store our shoes when we're in a hurry because, you know, you've got places to go. The needs are really important to figure out why people are doing what they're doing because sure, there's a problem, but if you don't figure out why, you can't solve it. Then the next step was what we're going to try out. And what they decided to try out was to take a bin And the person who is bothered the most by the shoes will put the shoes in the bin. And anybody who leaves their shoes on the floor, your shoes are just going to get thrown in a bin. They started out with the idea that whoever makes the biggest mess has to clean up the shoes. But then it was like, who can, how do we know who made the biggest mess? You know, like who has the most shoes on the floor? Who's going to go find that person? So they just ended up deciding the person who was bothered the most. And then they had questions to check in, like, can you open the door? (laughs) Is the person who's bothered feeling better? And like, is it easy to take your shoes off and go do what you need to do? So then they they checked in on it. And as far as I know, it's working well. The shoe shoe bin system is here to stay. Wow. So how long ago was the first meeting and and how, what was the delay to the check-in? About a month ago. And it was a weekly check-in. And I, I haven't checked in with them, but they've been checking in with themselves and I haven't heard any complaints. So we'll have another meeting soon. That's good. That's a good idea. Just thinking of my own shoe rack and my own pile of shoes on the door. Luckily, it's not stopping it from opening, but also thinking, yeah, I've been, I actually have a bedroom bin that when I'm too busy to tidy up, but um, there's stuff everywhere. So there's like a football, a, a sleeping mat an umbrella and a bunch of other stuff that when, I, when, I'm, when I'm annoyed by the mess but I'm too busy to kind of clean it up properly, right. the bin is a great suggestion. So I'm sure that there'll be lots of listeners going away and buying bins from Bunnings probably here in Australia. And um, <laughs> I love that. Um, computer time, what happened there? So, yeah, with the computer time example, 
it was really important to me that the young person involved felt like they came up with the solution. So what had been happening was computer time had been affecting the family and the family kind of cracked down. The parents were just like, no more computer time or something like that for several weeks. And then we talked for a long time about people's needs. We talked less about what was happening than about the needs. The parents really wanted connection with their their kid and they wanted to feel like they're all on the same team. And um, the kid wanted to not be interrupted when they were doing something that felt important to them. The kid also was spending a lot of time connecting with people on the internet, like connecting with friends that they can't see every day. So in digging out those needs, I think the biggest need that I was hearing was for autonomy. This is a 14-year-old, and I, I kept saying to the parents, a few years from now, this is going to be entirely your kid's problem. <laughs> and when they're an adult, they're going to have to navigate this on their own. So I think it's important that you're helping them or you're letting them navigate it by themselves. And the parents were saying, like, we're not okay with them just doing whatever they want. So the solution that they came to was that the child themselves, the 14-year-old, would make the rules. And then the child said, look, I, I don't want to be on a computer this much. It's, I can see that it's a problem, but I need help keeping those rules, but I want to make the rules. And then they'll be my rules. So that, I feel like, was the real heart. We were kind of wandering all over the place. And I was like, is this meeting even working? I don't know what's happening. And then it was like, yes make the rules and then the the parents help enforce the rules but it was a support role for them and then their check-in questions were things like are the parents helping with the rules are the other chores getting done and also how does everybody feel about the relationship because the real core of it is that the kid wants to be respected with their choices and the parents want to feel connected and like a family that has a positive relationship where their child isn't just always on the computer. So I think that was the most crucial like check-in question. That's great. What what did the rules end up being? I mean, I know it's not about the rules because the rules are what were important to that young person, but just out of curiosity and for those listeners who are like, oh, I'm, I'm wondering what rules my 14-year-old, I'm guessing it was a 14-year-old kid, I'm wondering what rules my 14-year-old kid would make if I let them make their own rules. What, what did they come up with? I'm not sure of the exact specifics, but they were around how much time to spend at a, at a time, like at a session on the computer, when bedtime would be, and then what are the rules for the parents interrupting the child, which is basically like when you knock on the door, like, can I say, give me five minutes, you know, things like that. Mm. Yeah, I like that. And I guess it's related to, yeah, I would, that's something else I was thinking about. Like, how do we support the young person to follow their own rules? Do we come in with a stick and be like, your time's up and, you know, whatever? Or do we say, oh, you know, gentle reminders, things like that? Because I think that would be an important part of that, that planning um, process as well. Dear listeners, if you're finding this discussion with Hope Wilder stimulating and you'd like to be able to easily refer back to and remember some of the most valuable takeaways from our discussion, as well as dive a little deeper into some of the ideas within Hope's book, why not consider becoming a patron of the ERRR podcast? Patrons are listeners who contribute a monthly donation to support the ongoing production of the show and, in return, receive a summary each month of the key takeaways from the episode. 
Patrons also receive access to an interactive transcript of each episode, meaning that if you'd like to listen back to a specific part of the episode, you can simply do a word search for a key term, then be taken directly to the spot within the podcast and listen back at the convenient click of a button. This month's summary for patrons includes a summary of the process of sociocracy, the why of sociocracy, as well as some more of my reflections about the process and its power. So if you'd like an actionable summary of this episode of the ERRR podcast, and if you'd like to support the ongoing production of the show, simply go to patreon.com forward slash ERRR and sign up to support the show for as little as $1 per month or the average donation of $5 per month. That's patreon.com forward slash ERRR to support the show and help to keep it sustainable for the long term. Now, back to this episode of the ERRR podcast with Hope Wilder. How did you come to be working with this family? They're a family that I've been consulting with one of the parents for a startup school that they're running using sociocracy. Cool. And they were like, oh, this, this process seems great. I feel like my family could, could help with it, do this as well. Yeah, exactly. And I, I end up speaking informally with a lot of people and families about, but this is the only family since I've written the book that I've stepped through the process step-by-step step with. Mm. Yeah, I feel like I know that this issue, especially around digital technology use with teenagers and negotiating that with parents and for it to be a positive kind of discussion where everyone feels involved and heard and things like that is so important. So I might even after this podcast, I might put out a, a like a Google form or something on the podcast page. And maybe if parents are keen to learn more, we could collaborate, hope and, and run a bit of a online workshop or something for people yeah that would be exciting mm-hmm. we could run something like that because i think it is is a super important topic and something that a lot of people are, are struggling with at the moment and i definitely see it in my in my role in high school as well dear listeners after the podcast hope and i spoke a little further on this idea and we would absolutely love to run an online workshop for parents who are really keen to learn how to run a sociocracy-based discussion with their family to work out solutions to issues such as screen time, internet and game use, family time, keeping the house tidy, or any other issue you might be wrestling with at present. If you're interested to find out more, just go to the show notes for this episode at ollielovell.com and you'll see an expression of interest form in the middle of the Hope Wilder ERRR episode blog post. You should be able to find it by Googling Ollie Lovell Hope Wilder ERRR and that should direct you to the webpage, ollielovell.com forward slash ERRR forward slash Hope Wilder. Again, that's ollielovell.com forward slash ERRR forward slash Hope Wilder. Feel free to head there now if you would like to register your interest. But for now, back to the episode. In terms of this meeting, it kind of relies upon people following the norms of the meeting. When you introduce this, process do people follow the rules and if they don't like how do you deal with that because i'm thinking about this from like a school leader perspective as well i can just see meetings being so much more effective right as long as people kind of don't talk forever in during their spot like i i kind of did in our meeting how do you make the transition to having these types of meetings and and how do you kind of control that right It's very different with adults than with kids, but I would say with adults, the problem usually, there are two problems. One is crosstalk, so speaking when it's not your turn, and the other problem is going too long. I'd say a third problem is saying something when you don't need to say anything, just to say something when it's your turn. 
So all of those things, you can kind of model effective participation in a meeting. The way that I do it as a facilitator is the very first round, I go first. I didn't do that in our meeting, but a lot of times with a new group, I'll go first just to show how long your response should be. So in a check-in round, I might go first and say, I'm feeling really well today. I slept great last night. I had a good breakfast and I'm ready for the meeting. So I've said one little sentence, but it lets people know the whole point of a check-in round is so if somebody looks really grumpy, you know it's because they didn't sleep last night, not because they have a problem with you. <laughs> so modeling it myself and then being willing as facilitator to step in and say like, okay, we're, we have limited time. Could you please wrap up if somebody's going on too long? If there's crosstalk to say, remember, we're speaking in a round, that's crosstalk. Can you save what you have to say until it's your turn? And don't worry, we'll have time to respond basically reassuring people, you will get a turn, you'll be fine. That's the things that I do primarily with adults, I would say. Excellent. That's great. How, how does that go? Like, do people get offended when you say, we have limited time, could you wrap up now? Or does it usually go okay? People just go okay. I mean, I think honestly, like there's so much safety with boundaries and like knowing that somebody's going to call you out helps everybody feel safer. Everybody else in the meeting just takes a sigh of relief. They're like, wow, I'm so glad this person is going to not keep going forever and ever. And I think building that culture, it is a collaborative process, but the facilitator holds that safe space for everybody. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Awesome. That's great, Hope. So we have touched upon a few different topics like consent. I, I was wondering if you go into a little bit of a little bit more detail about this idea of consent because it's a word that's thrown around a lot right. and a lot of people say like, oh, we do consensus decision-making or we always seek consent. But it, you actually expand upon it with a really some interesting diagrams and ideas within the book. So could you give people a bit of, more of a nuanced idea of what's meant within sociocracy at least by the word consent? Sure. So it means within the range of tolerance of everybody who's there. The way I explain it to kids is what everybody's okay with. And that means that you might prefer that it's like warm and sunny outside, but you're okay going out if it's rainy, if you have a rain jacket. So as long as everybody's okay with it, then it's a decision you can live with that's consent. Mm. And something something you emphasize in the book as well is often you instigate like a, and you've touched upon it today, like a check-in. So it's like, I'm okay with this for now, but we're going to check in in X, Y, Z days or weeks. How does that usually look? Usually that's if somebody says it's not safe, then um, that's an objection and we would deal with it by either changing the proposal, taking what they're worried about and asking that at a check-in or making the check-in very short. So basically like with the raincoat example saying, okay, are you willing to go outside for five minutes? And if it's just awful in five minutes, we'll come back inside. Then a kid might say, okay, I can live with that. And then if you throw in hot cocoa, then it makes everything better. So. Okay. Sounds good. Objections. So we, we saw one example of an objection from drink bottle in that meeting earlier in our role play. And your response to that objection was, oh, that's fine. If, if you think of another kind of criteria for what makes a good podcast title later on, we can add it to the list. So that seemed like one way. Um, we've already talked about saying, you know, oh, maybe we can check in or, or something like that. But also in the book, you introduce the acronym ACT, A-C-T, for dealing with objections. Could you tell us a bit more about that? Sure. So that's the A is for amend, the C is for concern, and the T is for term. 
And I think I said earlier, I've never seen an objection that couldn't be overcome using one of these strategies. And I've been working in organizations using sociocracy full time since 2016. <laughs> so I've, I've seen it a lot. And um, amending it is just saying, what would help you feel better about this? Like if it's not good enough, if it's not safe enough, what would make it good enough or safe enough for you? Then the concern is if you're worried about something saying, are you okay if we try this out and we check in and see if that's, that concern is happening? And then the term is just shortening the term. Okay, it's not safe enough for one day. Is it safe enough for one hour? Is it safe enough for five minutes? And an example might be, we want to play Red Rover. Red Rover is a terrible game, by the way. Nobody should play it. It's dangerous. <laughs> I don't really know Red Rover. Oh, it's where you link arms and you call someone over and they try to break through your arms. So it can lead to breaking of, of arms. It's a schoolyard game. But um, to amend it, what would make it feel safe for you? Well, it would make it feel safe for me if we played a different game. Let's play tag. Concern, what about if we check in? What about if we try playing the game for five minutes and then we ask, is anybody getting hurt? Then at that term, I wrapped that in there too. Let's let's try it for five minutes and then check in. Mm. Okay, cool. A great, a great formula, the ACT formula. And something else we did at the end of that meeting was we celebrated. Tell us about this idea of celebration and why it's important in sociocracy. Yeah, so making decisions is hard and you know it can be vulnerable. And it's important to kind of wrap the experience with connection and fun. So in the beginning, when we're checking in, we're having fun. We're sharing about animals or clouds or whatever. We're being imaginative. Then at the end, we have a little dance party. And that's just making more like glue and relationship rather than just keeping it really dry and boring. So even, even with adults, when I'm in meetings and we do consent decisions, we do little like party emojis and people wave their hands in the air, even if they're muted or they say, yay. And I think it's really important to take that moment to celebrate. Cool. Is there an adult friendly version for when you're in person and you can't post emojis in the, in the chat? <laughs> I really think saying yay works. It's like kind of goofy, but most people seem to roll with it. Awesome. Just like yay, a little little clapping, clapping works. Nice. Hope, I'd love to ask you now a bit about some of the other things we can do with sociocracy. So we've talked about kind of deciding between different options and making suggestions, which we did through our example of, of naming this podcast. We've talked about kind of resolving challenges within groups like the shoe issue and the, the digital technologies issue but you've also mentioned some other things in the book like as um such as deciding on how to spend a budget or um, i'm another one i'm particularly interested to hear about is kind of electing someone to a new role could you tell us about how they work out sure I'll just give an example. At um, Pathfinder, we would give the kids $200 a month and they could spend it on whatever they wanted as long as they agreed on it. So um, typically they would do things like buying decorations and food for parties. They also like to pay for going on field trips and they would buy school supplies. Like they got really into painting on canvases. And I think an adult might say like, that's wasteful. Why are they spending so much money on canvases? But it was their choice to say, let's buy art canvases and then let's make this beautiful art and let's have an exhibition. I think that made it really exciting more than like just on normal paper. And it was their money. They consented to it, so it was fine. Then electing someone to a new role, 
we do this a lot at Sociocracy for All. I just got elected as facilitator of a circle that I haven't been facilitator before. And it starts the same way we did our process with qualifications. So what makes a good blank? What makes a good facilitator? A good facilitator is calm and checks in with everybody and sets a good mood, you know, whatever. Then um, you elect, you nominate someone and say why you're nominating them. That's the first round. Yep. After hearing what everybody says and why, then you can change your mind. And after you change your mind, the facilitator nominates somebody for consent. Okay. So you do one round and everyone says, I think this person should be nominated this why. And then following that, you just do you just go straight into a second round? Or does the facilitator say, based upon this first round, this person's nominated? Or you just go straight into the second one? Okay, this is like the revised nominations round. And then after that, the facilitator says, it seems like this person's being put forward. Is that which way, which one of those two? The second. So after the first give reasons round and then the second you get to change your nomination round, then you facilitate the facilitator nominate someone. Okay, cool. And then it's just thumbs up sideways or down and you might, what about the, the term? Like, is, is it usually like a fixed one or, or if it's a bit of an unsure thing, you might actually change the term of how long that person's going to be the facilitator or maybe they'll link to the higher circle or something like that. In one example, I objected to a term of a year because I felt like I wasn't experienced, but I did consent to a, a term of three months with a check-in and with support from the previous facilitator just because I was like, I object because I don't feel qualified. <laughs> Everybody else seems to think that I would do a great job. I'm willing to try it out, but I need the term to be shorter and I need to amend it by saying the facilitator will meet with me and kind of brainstorm how to approach issues in the circle. So yeah, usually that the role in the term is the first thing you read, read that out and that's a set thing before you get started with duties and, and all that kind of stuff. Okay. Have you seen like principals elected by this method? Who, what, have, what have you seen or who have you seen elected and what, for, to what roles? Mostly more like representatives. So what would be like the staff representative to the school circle or things like that. You also have um, in our board at Pathfinder, we always elect president, secretary, treasurer via this consent process. And the, the roles really pass around. I've never seen the school director be elected this way. That would be great. <laughs> every, I think every school that I've seen using sociocracy, the, the principal was already the principal and they just transitioned to sociocracy or it's the principal who brought sociocracy to the school and they haven't had a new person. However, a lot of places do hire new roles using this process. It would be more like the applicant is coming you know, you're interviewing applicants and you nominate between the applicants or something like that on a hiring committee. Yes. Okay. So the hiring committee kind of does a, does a few rounds in the same fashion. Mm -hmm. That sounds very sensible. What about for like more complex proposals? Like, you know, we've been talking about more discrete decisions here, but you know, there are lots of things that a school needs to do that happen over longer time periods. Or if, for example, if you're a community who wants to organize a conference or a large event or a festival or something, that's going to be like a huge undertaking with heaps of decisions to make and things like that. What does that look like if you're kind of using sociocracy principles for such a large project? Yeah. So for a larger project, like a conference, I just um, helped sociocracy for all organize a conference this past year. And what we did was really to delegate things into operational roles. So the idea is that not everything is decided in the group. So you might say 
the conference group helping circle, which was three people, myself as the school's representatives, and then an outreach person and a conference circle person. So the three of us are making all the decisions about the conference. I was empowered to decide the lineup of the conference because I'm, I was in charge of programming. And then the conference coordinator decided on like how to run the rooms and everything like that. And when we have um, meetings, they're very lean and we're just deciding how to get our work done together. So it's basically meeting to generate task lists and just saying, does this list look good? Okay, we can send to this list. Let's go. Let's make things happen. So those kind of operational meetings are a little different from decision-making meetings. You're just deciding how to get the work done and then you're doing the work. So it's just the kinds of decisions that come up when you're doing the work, but people are empowered to make those decisions by themselves in roles that they've been selected into, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. I'd imagine you'd all have to have to bring some things back to the group. Like, for example, you come up with a speakers list, right? But you can't just like fully have like 100% control over who's coming and who isn't. So is that then, so you'll get the task to say, to say okay, hope you go away, generate a draft speakers list, bring it back. Then we'll do a couple of rounds based upon that. And then we'll say yay or nay, make suggestions and modify. And then you'll go back and contact the speakers kind of a thing. Yep, exactly like that. Cool. Also, you're doing a great job of uh, modeling concise answers in this podcast, Hope, I must say, and, and <laughs> speaking when you have something to say and then stopping when you finish your point. I'm sure it's part of you, but I'm sure it's also something that's come through the, uh, the training process of doing sociocracy for many years. Thank you for the feedback. No worries. Important consideration. So some, some things, first question, group size. How many people can be in a meeting like this? We just did one with three people. Could have done it with two, maybe. How big can the groups get? What, what do you think? Ideal group size is like seven to 10. Six is really sweet, is a very sweet spot. But I will say the largest sociocratic organization in the world is actually a children's parliament, which are global, but the largest group of parliaments is in India and they run with 40 members a meeting. That's huge. Something that was in your book that we didn't do in our role play today was at the start of every meeting in the book you say this meeting will go for x minutes 15 minutes or whatever it might be is that something you would always do generally as well and um and is there a ideal time timing for a meeting yeah i would say with children 15 to 30 minutes max i recommend starting with 15 and you know the kids who are older like age eight to 12, they could do 30 minutes much more easily than five, five to sevens. It's like 15 minutes is pushing it. Okay. Got it. One topic per meeting. Is this definitely a thing? Can you usually cover a couple of different things in a meeting or how does that look? With children, I just do one topic per meeting. With adults, it's more like four or five and you might have an hour and a half to two hours. For most meetings I'm in are about an hour and a half. But yeah, with kids, it's one, one topic. And if you have more than one topic, break out into breakout groups. Talking objects. I mean, we've kind of already touched upon that, but is there anything else you wanted to add about the importance or the use of, of talking ob objects? Yeah, I'd like to acknowledge that it's an indigenous practice to speak in circles and to pass talking objects. And it can be adapted to working with children where you just remind them that the person holding the talking object has the turn to speak. And I think it's important that they can visualize who's the person who's talking. It could be a natural object that you found. It could be, you know, like a rock or something, or it could be something that's special to the group that you've made together. 
that can be really sweet. I've seen it where it's a jar where everybody has written down a wish and put a wish in the jar. It's their wish for their group. And that's, that's really sweet. But it, it helps people remember whose turn it is, is, is really. And it helps kids do something with their hands. Yes, which is a good segue into the next point, which is manipulatives. What are manipulatives and how can they be used in a meeting? Just something to do with your hands. So it could be coloring pages. It could be some kind of dough. I recommend if you're using Play-Doh, use a table. <laughs> Don't do it on the carpet. I speak from experience. I also would avoid anything like a ball. It's tempting, but no, then it's just, it's too much fun to play with, to throw it around. But something, something like coloring pages or something, um, we had a bunch of stress toys, like things that are meant to be squeezed that the kids could play with during meetings to keep them focused. So, I mean, some listeners might, might be thinking and listening and thinking, oh, surely playing with things and coloring doesn't help kids focus. So what, what do you mean by that, Hope? I think a lot of people, if they're doing something with their hands, it helps them listen better. I think a lot of people can relate to this by thinking about doodling, like when you're in school or class, doodling in the margins. For me, it's always helped me listen. It's not a distraction. It's just something to keep me from jumping up out of my chair and running out of the room screaming because I'm so bored. Okay, cool. That's interesting. I personally find doodling a distracting because I start thinking about the picture I'm drawing. But yeah, I know that there have been various gadgets invented to help people focus like this. But yeah, not something I'm super experienced about. But it's interesting to hear that you feel that or that it's been your experience that's been helpful. How do we hand over the reins to a student facilitator? Obviously, that's like we don't want to always have adult facilitators in these circles. What's the kind of time period, say, say I'm working in a primary school with year six students and we're helping them to develop like a, a student council where they're working out how to use a small budget and working out activities to celebrate multiculturalism or whatever it may be. I'd imagine that an adult facilitator or a teacher facilitator would run it and model these meetings for a while. What's the process look like of kind of handing over those reins to students? Sure. Well, the first thing that I would do is to empower the student facilitator to do the rounds. So basically just to be the person to pick who starts, which way you're taking turns in a circle, and just to call on people. It's your turn now. It's your turn now. It's your turn now. Because that's like practicing that facilitation muscle, but it's very low effort. Then the second thing I would teach them how to do is how to form a proposal or how to amend a proposal because that's really an art form, how to deal with objections. So in the moment, how to deal with objections, you have to have your script. I, I have a cheat sheet in my book that you can print out, <laughs> how to resolve objections. And I would give that to them and coach them, but be there if there's an objection they can't resolve, be there to step in so that they have that support. And then the third thing that they would learn would be how to form groups, to form proposals together as a group. So that brainstorming process we did is also tricky. So yeah, that's, that's the order that I would go in. And then at that time, I'd say they're pretty much ready to, to fly solo. Great. So get them to do the rounds first, help them to learn how to form or amend a proposal, have those scripts for dealing with objections and let, let them practice them, and then um, how to form proposals together as a group. Did I get that right? Yep. Mm-hmm. What are some of the common mistakes that people make when they're starting out on the sociocracy journey? I have to say one big mistake is kind of expecting that everyone will want to participate in every decision. 
a lot of people don't want to decide. They'd rather have someone else decide for them. And it's okay to let people opt out. That's with kids and adults, really. Then a second problem I see is that people make the barrier to entry too high. And by that, I mean, it's really a proactive process to go around looking for what are the problems? What are the opportunities? What are the potential proposals that people have? That should be really, if you're a teacher or an administrator, it should be an active process. Like, don't just say there's a sign-up sheet on the wall. Go around and ask people what's happening that you don't like. You know, what improvements do you see that could be made? And we would do that by asking questions in grade or age group circles. Like, on a weekly basis, what do you like in our community? What do you want to change in our community? Are there any problems that you see? So we're not just waiting for the kids to come to us. We're coming to them. And I guess the third one, I would say trying to think what's the the worst mistake. Oh, the worst mistake that people make is giving people power and then taking it away. And that's, I think, the, the worst thing you can do because it really erodes trust. One example I gave in the book is I saw a principal who gave a group of kids a discretionary budget. They did this whole participatory budgeting process and they were really proud of what they came up with. It was part of a civics curriculum to actually learn how to do this more complicated process. And then he just said, sorry, that's going to the facilities budget now. Um, You can't use that money the way that you plan to. And it was heartbreaking. You know, they'd put so much work into it. So I'd say when you're giving power, make sure that you're not going to take it back. Mm, That is very good advice. And that's a very sad story that you shared there. Um, Where within a school say a mainstream school, because most people listening are probably working in mainstream schools, what kind of domains would you hand over first to students and how would you grow that and hand over more responsibility over time? Yeah. So in, in a mainstream school, I think you have to be really creative because you're restricted by the curriculum, by the standards, that kind of thing. So one way you can start is with small learning projects, like within the curriculum, asking the students, how do they want to learn? How do they want to present their learning to you? And you could let each student present individually. Maybe one of them writes a poem. Maybe one of them does a big graph. Maybe one of them writes a paper. It's really hard to grade that kind of thing. But occasionally, if you have the flexibility to let the students be more creative in how they present their work, that can be really good. Deciding on a group project, so just giving a group saying, okay, you're going to do a project together on polar bears, but you get to decide how you do it together, like who does what piece of the work, and this is what the work needs to look like when it's done. So there's still all of those parameters that you need in the classroom. Another thing that's kind of fun is just saying, like, here's a bulletin board. You decide what goes on the bulletin board. Like there's a bulletin board committee (laughs) and they decide what goes on the wall within the parameters of it has to be appropriate, you know, things like that. It maybe it's topic related. You get to decide, you know, it's a bulletin board about climate change and you get to decide what the display is. And that's it's taking work off of the teacher's shoulders, really. And then there's things like how to clean the classroom. Group agreements is the number one place where I would start actually for classroom teachers because having consent to how do we treat each other as a group and what happens when somebody breaks those agreements. Of course, you'll have to follow school-wide behavior policies and everything, but you might go above and beyond in your group to say, well, what does respect mean to you? Like, what does respect look like? How do we want to treat each other? 
make a big list, have everybody sign it, and then you have something to come back to when there are conflicts. How do we keep our classroom tidy? You know, whose who's responsibility is it to make sure all the pencils get sharpened or whatever? And most students love responsibility. So I would say delegating things like cleaning the classroom and keeping it tidy. It's a little bit of managerial work to start with, but then it's makes things so much easier and everybody's having fun, you know, being part of making the classroom come alive, you know, whoever's job it is to, to sharpen those pencils is going to make sure they're really sharp <laughs> or, you know, who's, who's electing people into positions like line leader, who is, whose job is it to line people up at the, the head of the class, whose job is it to open the door into the yard and other rituals like I've heard of people deciding together what is the signal for transitions in classes? Like when we all come to the carpet, we put on this nice background music. And that means you have one minute to finish up what you're doing and come to the carpet. So I heard about that in a class where the student said to the teacher, we don't like it when you nag us and like yell at us to keep going to the carpet when we're finishing something up that you also told us to do. It's like, yeah, what's the student supposed to do in that situation? So they did a brainstorming process and came up with, well, let's turn on this nice music that everybody agreed to. And that's the one minute signal. And then because of that, everybody does it. You know, it's like the teacher doesn't have to nag anymore and it, it works much more harmoniously. So I, I hope I hope that's some good examples that can kind of get some sparks going. Yeah, that's lots of lots of awesome examples. If if a school's like Often the place that student voice is strongest within schools here in Australia, at least, is within like a student representative council or something. And they look very, very different from school to school. But I can definitely see that as a space where often that's a space where a couple of confident students might kind of dominate or really lead things. And you get a few students who are kind of sitting back and not participating. And often there aren't particularly good decision making processes and procedures in those groups. So if there's someone listening who's kind of got a role with a student representative council, is this just something that they could just start using in that group to help make decisions or are there specific domains that you've seen? Because right in, the, right in, in those examples you gave, we were mainly looking at, mainly looking at um, within a single classroom, like a single teacher's classroom, but across the school, if we think about the domains, what sort of domains might you hand over to, to students to start off with? Right. I've seen it happen really successfully with student councils to organize events, like end of year celebration or something like that. I prefer personally student councils that have more say into how the school runs. One of the schools that I know, the student council in Michigan, the students lobbied for longer breaks between classes. I think they had something like three minute breaks between classes and they, they got it up to seven minutes. And it was a thing where the administration said, well, we need class time. And the students were like, we can't even get to the class <laughs> in three minutes. You know, this isn't working. And I just imagine how much happier people at schools would be if the needs of the students were recognized as important in those kind of functional pieces like how long are the classes, how long are the breaks, how long is lunch, that kind of decision making. And I would say if a school wanted to adopt sociocracy into the student council, I would do it step by step and with consent and with a group like a study group that is learning about sociocracy. But um, you can't just force it on people that would deny the whole 
rule of consent. <laughs> so the idea would be to introduce one concept and to say, can we try check-in, check-out, and talking in rounds? Just those three things we'll, to try for today's meeting. And at the end of the meeting, can we see how did it go? And did you like it? Would you like to try doing it again? So step-by-step -step consenting to the process. Let's try using consent decision-making for this decision. If I facilitate, and then at the end of the process, did we like it? Do we want to try it again? And if people are like, no, we hate it. Let's do voting. Then it's like, there's nothing you can do. You just have to go back to voting. Okay. Yeah, that's interesting. And a great, and a great point about consenting to the consent process, I guess. Okay. So I'm just imagining there's a, probably a few principals out there listening and going, oh, I'd really like to bring this into my school. They could maybe start with something like, just start with smaller decisions. Like we're having a maybe a free dress day, what are the guidelines for our free dress day? Or, you know, we want to have a fundraiser day, here's five options, let's have a, have some discussions around which of the options to choose. Is that the kind of limited choices you'd start with? Yes, exactly. What to staff in the staff lounge, well, I mean, what to stock in the staff lounge is a great decision. Should we have tea or coffee? Or both, what kind of biscuits? Yeah. Yep. Okay. And then say for a, if a school is kind of introducing this and they're, you know, they're starting with a decision like what are the guidelines for the free dress day or which of these five things should we do as a, as an, our next fundraiser? Cause you might have lots of students who want to be involved. You might have just a few, how would you put the call out and how would you kind of divide, like work out how many circles to run and how to do that? Cause it could be, you know, you might have a thousand kids who are all like, oh, I want to have a say in this, or you might have, you know, five. If you had like 30 kids who were like, oh yeah, I want to be part of this decision, how would you kind of structure that? Yeah, I think I'd break it up into different committees. Which decision was it? Like a, an event or something? Let's go with the um, how to, what should be our guidelines for the free dress day? Right. Um, with 30 kids, that would be hard, <laughs> but you could just break it up into like four groups or so and say each group to come up with some ideas and then to facilitate representatives from each group in kind of a final process. Or you could just have everybody dump a bunch of ideas in a bucket and then kind of pick some out and do a consent process. So that could work too. Okay. What are the limitations of sociocracy? What, what can't it do? It's really hard to make aesthetic choices with sociocracy. So like what color should we paint this wall can be very contentious. Any one-time decision that you can't have a check-in on is very difficult. Like say there's a tree, should we cut down this tree? You can't uncut down the tree. <laughs> you know, when it's gone, it's gone forever. So you can't say, let's cut down this tree for a little while and see what happens. So that's a limitation. People often think it's a limitation in large groups, but really it's just a matter of breaking it up into subgroups. Like I said, the children's parliaments run with tens of thousands of children and these groups are 40 and it's a federated system and it works great. So that's not really a problem. I can't think of any other limitations. Oh, I guess, I guess they're the same sort of human limitations, just that people are going to bring all of their problems to the process. Governance makes things so much better. It does make meetings much more efficient and decisions much more clear, but people are still going to have feelings about it and you'll need some way to talk about conflict some way to talk about feelings that's not just strictly a sociocratic process. People will need a way to deal with that outside of meetings, basically. Mm. 
Okay, so I mean, today we at the example that I chose for us to discuss was both an aesthetic decision and a one-time decision. What should this podcast be called? So I chose a tricky one. We managed to get through it, which was great. But do you have any suggestions for making those kind of decisions? Do you just kind of delegate? Do you have a? I'm thinking an aesthetic one. You could say have a meeting about who should make this aesthetic decision, right? Who's the most qualified person who's going to pick the best color for that wall? Is that how you kind of use sociocracy play into that? And for the one-time decisions, is there any advice or things you've learned about how to run them decisions like should we cut down this tree? Yeah. So the first one, I would say that's a great solution. And yes, delegate one person, not a committee. <laughs> And then another way you could do it is you can actually try out, you know, let's let's get the smallest sample paint and let's paint a sample, samples of five different colors on the wall and then have people vote. You know, voting is annoying, but sometimes voting, just a simple vote works and saying like, you know, most people liked this. Can everyone live with it? Most people liked the eggplant purple. Is everyone okay with it? So that you still have that consent in the process. Then um, with the tree, the only thing I've thought of with the tree is like lots and lots of feedback on what effects it would have to cut down the tree. What are the pros and cons of cutting down the tree? And then if there's any way to model what it would be like with the tree cut down. So like having a little model of your, your building and whatever, and here's it with the tree, here's it without the tree, here's what we could do with the space if the tree was gone. But that's pretty much the only way you can try it out don't cut down the tree. That's my advice. (laughs) (laughs) Good advice. Um, What's your vision for sociocracy? I want sociocracy to be seen as a viable governance alternative for everything in the world. So I, I think it would be the best if companies ran via sociocracy, if there were governments that ran using sociocracy, if it wasn't just schools and nonprofits and a few people here and there. Cool. And I guess that relates back to the context in in which I first heard about sociocracy was about like large scale decision making with like these circles that, you know, basically every member of the public who wants to be part of a decision is within a circle. And then they have representatives that go up to like higher level circles for the district or the state. And then they have representatives that go up into the, the kind of national level um, things. Is that what you're talking about? Yep. Great. Some closing questions, Hope. Where can people go to learn more about sociocracy? The first resource I would recommend is sociocracyforall.org. You can find my book there. You can also find there's a whole schools resource page, which is sociocracyforall.org forward slash school. There are some great books. There's a book called Hello Neighborocracy that is about the children's parliaments movement and There are several books. The one book I would recommend from Sociocracy for All is called Who Decides Who Decides. And that's a great book for somebody who wants to start using sociocracy in a group. Cool. That's funny because I'd read that title, Who Decides Who Decides, and I was like, why have they called it Who Decides Who Decides? But it's like, who decides? Who decides? I I get it now that you actually set it out. So thanks for helping me with that one. Your three favorite books on education. Sure. First one, Changed My Life Forever, Free to Learn by Peter Gray about self-directed education. And that's what inspired me to found my school was directly hearing him talk and then reading his book. Second one, Geraldine Rowe, It's Our School, It's Our Time. I don't know if you've read that or if you're going to have her on the podcast because she's amazing. Just came out recently and it's about collaborative decision-making in schools and how just exactly where you were talking about what kinds of decisions can you make with students. 
She's less focused on how to make those decisions like I am and more what decisions can you make. And then Conscious Discipline by Becky Bailey, which is all about kind of self-regulating as you're trying to help a student self-regulate. And it's based in neuroscience. I love it because it's trauma-informed and just really has helped me with quote-unquote difficult, really difficult situations with students, I would say. Fantastic. Um, I had Peter Gray on the podcast to talk about his book, Free to Learn, uh, in the past, but I haven't yet read or spoken to Geraldine Rowe or Becky Bailey, so I'll have to check those ones out. Thanks for those suggestions, Hope. What advice would you give to your first-year teacher self? I would say to listen to my internal like compass and also to really be sensitive to my own boundaries and to put self-care first so that I wouldn't burn out. That was a really a hard problem for me in my first year of teaching. Okay. Very good advice. What are you currently excited about? I am so excited about the Provisional World Children's Parliament. And like I was alluding to the Neighborhood Children's Parliament, this is a vision for kind of a UN of children with representatives from all over the world representing the needs of children to the United Nations. And I'm currently working on a grant to help fund more administrative support to help teach children sociocracy, teach trainers how to teach children sociocracy, and then help. They want to get started in at least 20 countries, and then they'll drop the title provisional. I think now they're in around 10 countries, and they have a meeting of about 40 40 young people who meet once a week on Zoom to talk about issues in their community and how, you know, how we can come together at the global level to try to solve those local problems. Cool. Where can people go to find out more about that? You can Google World Children's Parliament or the um, website, I believe, is pwcp.earth. Maybe it's just wcp.earth. I'll, I'll have to look that up. Cool. And we'll put that as well as the other books you mentioned and the other sociocracy resources in the show notes. Sorry, I cut you off there. Hope, please continue. Oh, no, no, no problem. I was just going to say the last thing is that they're organized by the sustainable development goals of the UN. So like climate change, hunger, poverty, that kind of thing is what aligns the work of the children's parliaments. That sounds fantastic. Any last calls to action, things you'd like listeners to go away today and do? Sure. Anyone who lives or works with children, I would encourage you to check out the Let Grow Project, which is working with your child to pick out one decision that you usually make that they could make instead. So it might be how they cut their hair, or it might be that they walk to school by themselves. Um, and it's it's a homework assignment that could change your life. Love that. Hope Wilder, thank you so much for your time today. As I mentioned at kind of at the, the top of the podcast, sociocracy is something that I've been mildly aware of for a few years or almost a decade now. And um, it's been so great to be able to read your book and then explore today with you in detail uh, about the process and the power of sociocracy. Clearly, it's something that has promise in the school, in the classroom, at the national and international level, and even helping people to work out, you know, where to put their shoes and how to manage screen time and things like that. Uh, And we've, we've really covered so much. I really enjoyed going through the process, and I'm really happy with the podcast episode title that we came up with today. And yeah, it's just really wonderful process. Thank you for your, your great work. And I look forward to hearing more uh, from you in the future and maybe even uh, collaborating on a webinar for parents or something like that. So if, if parents are interested in that, that idea of a, 
digital technology discussion facilitation workshop let us know and and if there's enough interest we'll we'll try to line something up so thank you so much for your time today hope wilder thank you it's been a pleasure Thank you for listening to this episode of the ERRR podcast with Hope Wilder. If you stick around past the outro, you'll also hear two clips from a real-life sociocracy conversation at a progressive school called New Roots. Clip one is from the thick of a sociocracy conversation, including rounds and multiple suggestions from students. And clip two is from the reflection at the end of the meeting. I hope that you enjoy these real-life snippets. A reminder too that if you're interested in a potential session on parenting discussions with Hope and I, jump onto ollielovell.com forward slash ERRR forward slash Hope Wilder to register your interest. Or you can just Google Ollie Lovell Hope Wilder ERRR and that page should come up as well. If you're keen to never miss a podcast, a blog post or other exciting educational announcement, then jump onto ollielovell.com forward slash subscribe to make sure you get all the updates from me about teaching and learning. That web address again is ollielovell.com forward slash subscribe. If you enjoyed this episode, then please share it with friends and colleagues. And if you've got any suggestions for future guests you'd like to hear on the ERRR podcast, I'd love to hear from you. Or if you've got any suggestions, comments, thoughts, or reflections of this episode or any other ERRR episode, I always welcome contact from listeners via Twitter or email. Thank you for your time and listening today. Have a wonderful week. And until next time, keep learning. And for those who've stuck around, here's clip one from a sociocracy discussion. Does anybody have any questions? No? Okay. So the main topic that we wanted to talk about was, we touched on it in the last meeting about building community again at New Roots because of COVID and everything, with grades being separated, it's been a little harder for people to get to know each other. And we kind of got the sense that there, you know, there are many ways that we can get people together, but if people don't come to school, that's not possible and we're having some problems with attendance so we thought we could brainstorm questions to bring back to crews to ask based around like what makes you want to come to school to try to make new roots a better environment for students and their learning so um yeah does anybody want to start with an idea for a question to ask your crews I can. Uh, I guess, what do you need from your peers to have a positive school experience? Which way do you want to pass it? Um, this way. Did you see it the other way? Yeah, sure. Should I like, pass it and come back to me? Yeah. So, what was the question again, just so I know? Um, yeah questions to bring back to crew around like, like the main point of like what makes you want to come to school so we can try to get an idea of why students yeah. aren't coming to school i mean this is just like i'm still thinking of ideas but it might be a little too personal but like asking like what motivated you to like pick coming here and stuff um but that that could that has like either ways it could go um and also, like, what do you enjoy the most about going to New Roots? I don't know. I'm not, I'm really good at coming up with questions right now, but those are a few I thinking about. What do you need from teachers to make uh, your New Roots experience better? 
Um, maybe, like, honestly, just asking why aren't you going to school? Like... Pass. <laughs> um, I'll just pass. I'll pass, too. Pass. And finally, here's clip two, in which the students reflect on their discussion. Okay, I think we can do... Sorry, we have to end in like two minutes. So I think we have enough time for an evaluation round, like a really quick one, and then everything's good. Does anybody want to start? I can start. I think <laughs> we did good. I think there was a lot of repetition that wasn't needed per se though, if I'm being completely honest. I feel like a lot of times people feel like they need to, um, you know, say that they also agree with somebody, but um, repeat the same things, which I feel like takes a bit more time. So just a reminder that if you do agree with somebody, just to say, I agree. I also feel like there is a bit of inconsistency with the round. So just remembering um, to try to keep with them, just to make sure that everybody can speak if they want to speak. I'll pass it to Isabel. Um, I think we did really good. Came up with a lot of ideas and thoughts. It was a really good conversation. I also agree with Tara that there was a lot of repetition that went along. Um, so if, to make the meetings go quicker, because we're almost at a time, uh, we could just say like, I agree with this person, or I agree with that person. And I feel like that, and if you have something different to add, you can say that, but if we're just- It's so funny because we're doing the repetition. Yeah, somehow. I know. <laughs> <laughs> we want to get the point across. hard not to. We just want to like say it over and over again, yeah, get yeah. it into your mind. Good right. illustration. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This is what not to do. <laughs> okay. I agree with what was stated and had nothing to add. Pass. Thank you. Very much. I, I, I agree. This video went well. Yeah, I agree with Yeah, I agree. I agree. I agree. Um, I agree, and something that we could think about maybe is a survey for like getting more people's opinions and thinking about what's convenient versus what's safe. And I agree that this was a great conversation, a lot of great ideas generated. Um, one piece of feedback is that I'm leaving feeling uncertain about what the action items are, but I know you use Google Classroom, so I'll look okay. for what's next. I can do a quick reminder. So I. The notes are posted on under classwork and career reports, career report 2, 10, 22, and that has all the notes and it has the questions to bring back to your crews, and then also the survey link 